grace. Uh, like Jono has said and Kenny has said as well, we start a new series this Sunday. We're going to be looking at the book uh, of Romans, particularly chapter 8. Uh, it's known to many as the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, a lot of theologians love this book. Um, it speaks of God's goodness and glory. Um, and so it's exciting. It's exciting for us to, over the next seven weeks, to navigate ourselves or journey through the book of Romans, and again, particularly chapter chapter eight. We've we've simply titled it Romans chapter eight. We don't want to be creative and funky about it because in itself it's incredible and amazing. But before I read the the first few verses uh, for our time this morning, I'm going to give you a quick overview of the book of Romans, right? Just to give you an idea of what's going on, who wrote the book, why uh, they wrote the book, and it'll be really really brief. Romans. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, identifies the author of this book. And many of us might know this, that uh, Paul the Apostle wrote this book. But uh, to be specific, Romans chapter 16, verse 22, indicates that Paul used a man named Tashus to record his words. And so, so Paul didn't write them, but he spoke these words, and, and Tashus would take notes of what he was saying. The book of Romans was likely written around A.D. 56 to 58. This is after Jesus. Paul was excited about being able to minister at last to this church in Rome. The letter to the Romans was written in Corinth, just prior to Paul's trip to Jerusalem to deliver the tithes and offerings that had been given to the poor. So he's on his way to um, to Jerusalem to, to give this, this offering that had been taken up for the poor. He had intended to go to Rome and then on to Spain. We see this in Romans chapter 15, verse 24. But uh, his plans were interrupted when he was arrested in Jerusalem. He would eventually uh, make his way to Rome, but he ended up there as a prisoner. Right? So eventually, over time, he ended up making it to Rome, but as a prisoner. So how did the letter get there? So a lady named Phoebe who was a member of a church in an area very close to Corinth, was uh, is considered to be the one who most likely carried the letter to Rome, right? Because Paul couldn't make it. But what is the purpose of this book? As with all of Paul's letters to the churches, uh, his purpose in writing was to proclaim the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ by teaching doctrine and uh, edifying and encouraging the believers who received this letter. Of particular concern, to Paul were those to whom this letter was written, those in Rome. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, uh, he addresses them, says, those who are loved by God and called to be saints. Because he himself was a Roman citizen, he had a unique passion for these people. Right, He had Roman citizenship, and so there was a, a kind of a unique passion, much like many of you, if, you uh, if South Africa is your home or wherever your home might be, there's a, there's a unique passion for your people. All right? And you see this in the book of Romans when he writes to them, when he addresses them. This passion is evident. And so that is the book of Romans. Like I said, a brief overview. I would encourage you to go and do some research on your own to try to understand the context and the place and, and what was going on. And it'll give so much more meaning to what we're going to be looking through over these next seven weeks. But I will do my best every now and then just to uh, kind of take a, an off-ramp to unpack a few things, again, to help you understand the broader context of the book of Romans. But this morning, we're going to look at only four verses, the first four verses of Romans 
chapter 8. And like I always do, I will read those four verses to you and then I'll pray and then we'll jump in. Romans chapter 8, hear these words of our Father. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful for your word. We're thankful that it continues to transform the individual lives of people. And so God, I ask that you would do that this morning. As we start a new series, would there be a freshness, a newness in the air? Holy Spirit, would you move through this place like a rushing wind? God, we want to be... We want to see you for who you are. Let your glory be revealed. God, I pray that you would unpack just the the many treasures that are found in these few verses. Help us to understand. Open up our hearts and our minds. God, I pray against the evil one whose desires to steal, kill, and destroy. I ask that you would come and give life to the full. And so it's to that end that I ask that you stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of all our hearts here be acceptable in your sight. May they be a, a sweet aroma to you. God, you are our king. You are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Permit me to start by asking you a, a question. Have you, have you ever struggled with this great tension? You're probably sitting there and going, well, what tension are you referring to? The, the tension, the tension of wanting to do the things that God has called you to do and yet finding yourself doing the things that you shouldn't be doing. I refer to this as the great tension. So often I find myself in this place where I'm going, I know I shouldn't be doing this because I want to do this and so I'm torn. The great tension. Now, if you say you've never battled with this, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, if you've crossed the line of faith, and you're sitting there and you're going, I I have no idea what you're talking about, I've never battled with this, then permit me to call you a liar. By your giggling, I'm assuming that that's too strong. Then, Then let me say it this way, then you are a fabricator of the truth. But for those who are willing to be honest with themselves, take heart regarding this struggle. Don't lose hope regarding this struggle because we can look to Paul for some help. We can look at at Paul's life because I know he himself wrestled with this. We see this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, where he refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. This is Paul the apostle. And yet he refers to himself as the chief of of all sinners. And so he's saying to, to us that, guys, listen, I struggle as well. I struggle as well. In fact, in Romans chapter 7 from verse 14 to 25, the apostle Paul, remember the author of this book, describes his own struggle as a Christian, trying to please God in his own strength, because in reality, that's what it is. He's trying to please God in his own strength. 
trying to measure up to this perfection that God has called him and us to. But because he's doing it out of his own strength, he just never gets there. But we also have to recognize that Paul is talking about the experience of every Christian, of everyone who's come to Christ. To argue that that Romans chapter 7 from verse 14 to 25, and we'll read it in a moment, cannot be the experience of a great Christian is to advocate an unrealistic and unhealthy approach to the Christian life. So let us put the masks down. Can we do that for a moment? Let's just put the masks down and, and let's just keep it real. And now before some of you freak out, because I know some of you might be thinking, oh, hold on, wait, 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 what are you saying on it? Before some of you call me a heretic, I want to say this, that there's nothing wrong with God's law. I'm not trying to, to, to bring God's law down to, to a standard that, that some of us can get over. That's not, that's not what I'm saying, and, and that's not what Paul is, is saying. There's nothing wrong with God's law. In fact, it's good and perfect. What Paul will reveal to us and what this series will reveal to us is that the problem lies with us. The problem lies with us. Paul's passionate conclusion is the cry of every Christian who has ever tried to please God on his own. But let's read for a moment. And as we read these words, you're going to feel the tension because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like Paul is making any sense here. You have to read it a couple times. But you can, you can hear that this is the, the tension of a man. He's like, I'm struggling. I, I, I just don't know what to do with myself. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 7, verse 14 to 25. Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law. That is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire is to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it. But it is sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Listen to the tension. There's great tension here. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. The great tension. This is such a tension. We want to do good, but we end up doing the very thing we did not want to do. Our inner being wants to please God, but the power to do so is is out of our grasp. And so it feels like we're in bondage. I don't know if you're like Paul, but I often find myself crying out, what a wretched man I am. 
But there is another experience. There is another experience that also belongs to every true Christian. And that is described in Romans chapter 8. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you would know something of this life that is unpacked in Romans chapter 8. But I want to say to all of us, we need to spend more time at the liberating mountaintops of Romans chapter 8. And so Paul strikingly introduces this great chapter and with our sermon series for the next seven weeks by saying this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Ah, friends, this should be enough for us to amen and go home. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This, this is a statement of fact. This is a strong statement of fact. See, the, the word condemnation in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 not only carries the idea of being condemned as if you're guilty, but to be better put, like a legal decision of guilt with a preceding punishment. That's what condemnation means, is that you are guilty, but, but there is Punishment that follows. A good example here would be that of a condemned house. Uh, many of you might remember this if you've been around Pretoria long enough. Uh, I used to live in Rez many years ago and would make my way to the University of Pretoria by way of a street called London. I believe that's what it's, it's still called, London. And uh, today, if you go there now, there's incredible flats and uh, um, I think office parks. It looks beautiful. But in my time, it, it was just a street filled of condemned houses. It was dark, scary. Apparently, there was a guy who used to mug guys for their shoes. Apparently, I, I don't know. I used to hear stories like that. But it was, it was a place you did not want to be after dark. Those houses were condemned. No one lived in them. And so when we think of a, a condemnation, we, we should think of a condemned house. It's a place that is unsafe to live. And not only has it been declared unsafe, that there is judgment hanging over that house. That that house should be knocked down and destroyed. That's what condemnation means. And so when in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, when it says there is no condemnation for the believer, that means that there is no sentence of guilt or corresponding punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we've been liberated of that. We've been set free from the condemnation of sin. In fact, in the original language, in the, in the Greek, the, the emphasis falls on the word no. No. Or in Greek, or days. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None whatsoever. No condemnation at all. I, I, I want you guys to hear this. And not only hear it, I want you to believe it. Because this will shape how you live. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet so many of us struggle with this. So many of us struggle with guilt and shame. We struggle to believe this. And so we live as if we are not free. We live in fear. This is like, some of you may have experienced this, maybe not. Um, I am not the... Uh, I've done something wrong, go stand in the corner generation. 
That's, that's not me. Uh, my father was Old Testament, um, and so he would beat us. Um, but there we go. Um, but I know some of you are already panicking. Oh my goodness, oh, it was no, I wasn't. Uh, it was it was punishment. It just felt like beating when I received it. But what would happen in our home is, is then I broke something, and, and my mom would go to you know where all the broken pieces are, and she'd start to clean it up, and we wouldn't really say anything to me. And so in my mind, I'm going, oh, this is great. There is now no condemnation. <laughs> there is no punishment. I've been forgiven. She'd clean it up, you know, and, and go throw it away. And, and then after throwing the pieces away in the bin, she'd look at me and she'd say, I'm going to tell your father. And I knew what that meant. I knew that punishment was on its way. And so the, the, the rest of the day, it was the worst thing if it happened in the morning because I'd have to wait until the evening. But the rest of the day, it would shape how I lived. Because I knew that there was this punishment coming for me. This punishment hanging over me. And so it's hard. It's hard to have fun with your friends, watching them laugh and knowing like, you know what, but it's six o'clock. Six o'clock. This is how some of us live. Those who've crossed the line of faith. Paul writes here, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet we live as if like, you know, he's, he's coming for me and I'm going to be punished. And, and there's so much fear to, to get into relationships, to commit, to be a part of things. It's just, I just don't know. There's, this, there's this, this hanging punishment that I believe is coming for me. And Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We see this in John chapter 3 verse 16, but I'd like to read more than that because many of us know this passage. We love this passage. John 3.16. I'm going to read it in the CSB translation. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We love this passage. But we should continue reading. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Verse 18. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned. And so if you sit here this morning and you go, I believe in him, there is no condemnation for you. Now does this mean I can do whatever I want? No, we'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to know this morning that you are liberated, that you are free. There is no condemnation for you. The phrase, in Christ Jesus, describes those whom there is no condemnation for. What does it mean to be in Christ? It speaks of those who are in Christ, those who have been united with Christ by faith, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as God's only Son who has died on the cross for their sins. It speaks of those who have confessed of their sin, those who trust in God's provision and does so through Christ. And I'll say it again. And so for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. We've been set free from the condemnation of sin. You have to believe this because it will shape the way you live. But let's keep moving. Verse 2 introduces in many ways, and for many of us, the forgotten liberating work of the Holy Spirit. Our context our circles, if I can call us that. We love to talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures. 
and we forget the Holy Spirit. That He is part of the Trinity. That He moves and, and shapes and, and, and He does incredible things, liberating things. And, and so verse 2 speaks of Him. It says in verse 2, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now the word law can be a tricky word in the Bible because it has several different meanings depending on the context. Even today, as we use the word law in our text, it has different meanings. See, sometimes we use the word law to refer to a written piece of legislation, uh, like the complexity of the Constitution, or maybe something as simple as the speed limit. Other times we use the word law to refer to a recurring principle, like the law of physics or the law of gravity, what goes up must come down. There are three different types of law that we find in these verses here this morning. There's the law of Moses, the law of sin, and the law of the Spirit. Now the law of Moses is an example of the written law, the, the, the written law, God's word here. These were the commands given to us to obey, for example, the Ten Commandments. However, the law of sin and the law of the Spirit are both laws of principle or of of force. See, the law of sin is a principle of my sinful nature which rebels against God and desires sin over righteousness. Whereas the law of the Spirit is the principle of the Holy Spirit living inside us who desires righteousness and holiness rather than sin. We should note the three important distinctions between these laws. Because we're going to see it over and over again in chapter 8. And so we should, we should try to distinguish them and have a, a healthy understanding of these three laws. So the law of Moses has righteousness, but no power. It has righteousness, but no power. The law of sin has power, but no righteousness. It has power, but no righteousness. And then the law of the Spirit has both righteousness and power. But let me briefly unpack this. The law of Moses, like I said, it has righteousness but no power. I was so tempted here uh, to mbaku the no power. Some of you get that. I won't, I, won't, I won't do it. The law of Moses functions, right? It functions as an arrow and a mirror. It directs us to the way of living a life that pleases and honors God. And if we do this, it will give us great joy and satisfaction. So it acts as, as an arrow that directs us to God. But it can't get us there. It can't get us there. The law of Moses also functions as a mirror, revealing that we are dirty and full of sin. So it's like every time you read the scriptures, it's like you're standing in front of a mirror and you're going, yeah, I don't do that, I don't do that, I fall short here, I fall short here. It's like a mirror revealing to us that we are full of sin. But it does not possess the power to cleanse us. That is the law of Moses. The law of sin has power but no righteousness. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 where it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the Spirit is now now working in the disobedient. 
We too are previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under the wrath, as others were also. So the law of sin has great power, but no righteousness. No righteousness whatsoever. For the wages of sin, the payment of sin, the power of sin is death. The law of the Spirit has both righteousness and power. See, here's what's so cool about what the Scripture is saying. But the law or the the principle, this principle has been overcome by a different principle. The the, the law of sin has been overcome by a, a different principle, a different power. Verse 2, I'll read it again. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin. And death. Now let me try to explain this. I get the privilege of traveling quite a bit, uh, and sometimes I get to travel in an airplane. Now, some of you have experienced that. Uh, the crazy thing is I actually don't enjoy uh, traveling by plane. Uh, it freaks me out, because there's nothing about that that makes sense. Uh, why a number of people would be uh, herded into this machine. And I use that word intentionally because we are like willing cattle going into this massive metal uh, machine that that flies uh, up into the air, into crazy, crazy, crazy altitudes and travels at insane speeds. And then they still want to convince us that that's the safest way to travel. None of that makes sense to me. But let me use this traveling by plane as an illustration for verse 2. See, every time you take off in an airplane, what happens is the law of gravity is present. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go, oh, okay, cool, I understand. You guys want to go by plane. We, we will just not exist anymore. No, the law of gravity remains. Gravity is just as strong as gravity has ever been. But every time you take off in a plane, you are harnessing a different principle, a different power, a different force. Remember, gravity is just as strong as it's ever been. But somehow we fly. Uh, If you guys knew what I was saying, I wouldn't have to preach as long. But somehow we fly. See, what, what, what verse 2 is saying is that in our sin, because we, we have given ourselves to the power of sin and we cannot get out on our own, we need something more powerful to come and save us. We need something more powerful to come and rescue us. The power of sin is still present, at least this side of heaven. Until Jesus returns again, the power of sin is still here today. It exists even in this room. Some of y'all might be sitting next to someone who's still covered in the power of sin. But the hope is that we know someone who overcomes this power. The law of the Spirit is the principle of God's Holy Spirit living within us, desiring righteousness and giving us the power to obey God's commands. It's the Holy Spirit that does this. If at any point in your journey as a Christian, you think it's me doing this, you are in grave danger. Recognize the power of the Holy Spirit who allows us to be obedient to God and to live in a way that glorifies Him. 
But how is this possible? This ability to obey God, to obey his word. It's this spirit of life that Paul refers to. The spirit of life administers the work of God the Father. Therefore, securing our liberation. We see this in verse 3. Paul writes, What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God did. Not you. Not you plus God. Not your upbringing plus God. Not your resources plus God. Not your intellect plus God. Not even your theology plus God. Now hear me, all those things are good. You, your upbringing, your resources, your intellect, and your theology, hoping that it's biblical. All of those are good. But the point is none of those things will save you. God did. God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. The the law held up its perfect standard. Nothing changed there. The law held up its perfect standard but was unable to empower us to live up to that standard because of the weakness of our flesh. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem lay with the weakness of our flesh. And so because of our, our flesh was inadequate, God sent Christ in the likeness of sinful man or sinful flesh. Paul was very careful with his words here. He's a, he's a wordsmith. I love Paul. He's intentional with his words. He did not say Christ came in sinful flesh because that would imply that sin was in him. Nor did he say the likeness of flesh because the word flesh alone might imply Christ only seemed to be flesh, to to only be human. But Paul writes, in the likeness of sinful flesh because Christ took on man's flesh. He, He took on our humanity but yet did not become a sinner. And so he was like me and you. He just did not give in to sin. I love how the great John Stott writes it. He says, Not as sinful person, for Jesus was sinless. Not in the likeness of humanity, for Jesus was fully man. But in the likeness of sinful humanity, for Jesus was both completely sinless and completely man which speaks to his deity, that he's, he's fully man and yet at the same time he was fully God. But why? Why would God do this? Why send this sin offering? Verse 4 tells us this. In order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit creates a new humanity which is characterized by walking And according to the Spirit, this new humanity through our union with Christ, whose flesh never sinned, is infused with the power to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Remember, on your own, you cannot do this. You cannot live in a way that is pleasing to God. Never, never, never believe that lie. And it's a danger for many of us because our church is is filled with folks who are highly competent. And so everyone is always telling you how amazing you are. You're incredible. 
You're being promoted. You're being given these incredible opportunities. And so the danger is to, to bring that, to drag that into your understanding of what it means to be a Christian and then to go, you know what, then I can do this on my own. We needed God to send His Son to die on the cross for our sin. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to obey Him and to live in a a way that pleases Him. Everything the law required is now realized in the lives of those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit. When God looks at us, He first sees His Son, Jesus, living in you. Then He sees you. And not just you, but He sees you being compelled by the Holy Spirit to do the very things that please Him. See, the principle of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the principle of sin and death. Thus, when we yield to the power of the Holy Spirit, friends, we are liberated. We no longer have to sin. Through the Holy Spirit, the virtue and perfection and power of Christ's life is communicated to us. We actually do the law of God from the heart. It's a crazy thing. That all of a sudden now, I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to give. I don't have to be convinced that the law says this and the law says that. No, that's not. I don't have to be convinced because the, the Holy Spirit lives in me and His power is at work. And so I want to. I want to love my enemies. I do. Because the Holy Spirit is at work. I want to sacrificially give. Because the Holy Spirit is at work. I want to know God's word. I want to find myself swimming in the depths of the richness of his word. Because the Holy Spirit lives in me. We actually do the law of God from the heart. We love him with all our heart. And we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. If you ever wondered how to do that? Jesus summarizes all the commandments by saying, love God with everything and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you go, even that's incredibly difficult. He's like, don't worry, I'm sending a helper because I know you need the help. You may be a great accountant, great teacher, great husband, but you are in desperate need of a savior. And so I'm sending you a helper. And so R.K. Hughes says it beautifully and we'll land the plane here as we begin this journey and it's really going to talk about our identity. Romans 8 talks about our identity. If you can understand who you are in Christ, it'll change everything. Literally everything. I want to encourage you to go and read Romans 8. Spend some time in that chapter just reading over and over and over again. And, and, and what you'll realize is you're going to need context and so you'll have to read Romans chapter 6 and 7. It'll be super helpful for Romans 8. But then you're going to need Romans 9, 10 to try to understand. So where is this going? Romans 8 is that, that centerpiece, if you will. It says, anchor yourself here. And so to close our time, R.K. Hughes says this. Speaking of the, the liberating work of the Holy Spirit, 
that sets us free, that allows us to live in a way that pleases God. He says, this is a great miracle. Speaking of our liberation, this is a great miracle. As great as when the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep with power and materialized a new creation at the spoken word of the Father. He's saying this is as powerful as when God said, let there be light. It's the power that now lives in you and enables you to do what is pleasing to him. That is who we are as Christians. And if you've crossed the line of faith, this is who you are. Let's pray. And so God, we come now asking that you would over and over and over again remind us of this beautiful truth. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no guilt. There is no shame. There is no fear. That we can look to you as Father. We can cry out to you as Father. That we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And we can do this because of the finished work of Jesus. That the tomb is empty. That Jesus, you are seated right now at the right hand of God. Continually praying for us. You're interceding for us. God, you didn't leave us on our own. You sent the Holy Spirit and you sent him with all power. And so Holy Spirit, we come now asking that you would break down any walls that exist in our hearts any barriers and boundaries that keep us from knowing our Father as we ought to. We cry out to you, Holy Spirit. For some of us, would you soften our hearts? Maybe we're angry and we're bitter and we're unwilling to to follow God, what you say in your word. Soften our hearts. Many of us have walked in here wrestling with many things. But God, my prayer is that Holy Spirit, nobody would leave here unchanged. Would you do a work that only you can do? And so God, we love you. We praise you. Have your way. In Jesus' name.